Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 92. We have some interesting economics that we're going to discuss today. This, the world is full of... I feel like in terms of economics, the world has never been stranger. Because there's, there is, I think, a real hunger for what? For clarity? For change, maybe? I don't know, a curiosity that wasn't there before? People are talking economics seriously for the first time and... I don't know how long. It feels like feels like there's always been a fringe group of libertarians and such. Bunch people, of weirdos, like, nerds, really. Yeah, really, uh, who uh, talk a lot of economics. Uh, but, uh, but for most people, there's kind of a, an assumption of of what works is fine, right? You, you just – there's something more empirical about it. Uh, no need for the theory per se. Um, you, have the, you have the obvious political divide between the two parties of one group leaning uh, – leaning free market, uh, in one group leaning less free market. And, uh, but, but you get very little substantial discussion on economics. That's changing. And, and part of it's being pushed by, by progressives right now. And this article that we're going to be dissecting today gets into that quite a bit. But before we get into that, we want to go over some, what's it called? Not cleanup. Some housekeeping, housekeeping took me a second to figure it out because we're, we're a real podcast and so we use real terms like housekeeping. That's clear, clearly a term created by, by, by and for podcasters. I, well, it's, it's one you hear by podcasters quite frequently. So <laughs> it's, it is true. Uh, uh, just wanted to let you guys know we are going to be releasing episodes on Saturday for the foreseeable future. It's just going to work better for our schedule. So just going to have to wait a couple more days each week. But the good news is, is that you're only waiting the same seven days per episode. It'll just feel like you're waiting longer because you're used to it. But just remember, that's a yes. psychological cost, not a real cost. <laughs> we still have our starring new guest here, uh, Brad's little one. You can hear occasionally cooing. Yes. I'm not going to make any jokes about it this time. It's absolutely adorable. Trying to get listens any way we can. <laughs> Do whatever it takes. <laughs> this is this is where the real demand is out there. What people have really wanted in their There's lives. A couple is, nerds discussing is, economics with a baby <laughs> cooing in the background. The baby cooing in the background. That's right. Really trying to hit every demographic with this. Uh, with this strangely particular <laughs> interest. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So you were telling me, Brad, that there's been uh, in. If you're reading the news, you'll see articles about economics. I think probably most people. Just glance over those, right? Probably don't click on those or read much into them. It's interesting as you get into it. It's really interesting. Um, but the, the, the latest for the stock market is not good. Yes. Yeah, so, so what happened is the May consumer price index report, which is what we use to track inflation, just came out this week, came out on Thursday and it announced that inflation was at 8.6% year over year, which they're saying is a 40-year high. I thought at one point it hit 8.9%, but I must have been wrong. And as a result of that, the Dow has fallen 700 points. Um, the other the other markets, you know, the NASDAQ, the S&P, they've, they've dropped off as well. Um, consumer um, sentiment has dropped again, which it was already lower. And so all in all, the market is looking like it's really struggling. Um, there are lots of concerns about a recession, 
right now. Um, people are really starting to freak out a little bit, which is also a good sign that it will actually cause a recession because, as you well know, the stock market is very much influenced by how people perceive the stock market. You know, it's it's a, a weird a weird half world. But the thing is, is that this half world has its claws in the real world. And so what happens in the stock market will affect the rest of the world. So even if you're not invested in the stock market, this will affect you. And it's not yeah, good. We've, we've, it's not good, um, unfortunately. It, it, may be, it may be necessary and good in the long term, which is something we could talk about. But in terms of the immediate – because in, in some ways what a recession is doing is revealing problems that were already there. It's not the problem. Yeah, yeah. Itself, you mean the right? recession may be maybe a good thing. In a the recession long run. may the be a good thing. Inflation is in the long not run, a good yes. thing in any of the runs. <laughs> that's true. Um, that's true. The inflation. There's no zero good. And sir. I almost forgot to mention one of the most surprising things about this, and one of the reasons people were upset about this because everyone's like, "Oh yeah, but inflation's been high for a while. Why would people care?" It's because the Fed has already put in place measures that were supposed to decrease inflation. Inflation was supposed to be getting better, not worse. And so the fact that instead of improving, it's actually gotten significantly worse means that what the Fed is doing is not working. And what the Fed is doing is increasing interest rates, which means now people have a harder time getting access to credit, which is something they use to purchase things they need. And so not only do things cost more, but now the cost to get the money to then purchase those things has gone up. So, you know, purchasing a car, purchasing a house, those prices are going to go up in real terms, not just because of inflation, but also because of the rising interest rates. Right. And the, the most the groups that are most heavily impacted by a, by a rise in the interest rate are going to be uh, investors, right? People who are going to who are looking long term taking loans out in massive numbers, you know, and, uh, and looking to make it profitable across a period of, you know, often decades. Um, but, but your point there is absolutely true that, that the, this does affect ordinary people. This does people use credit all the time for all kinds of things. Um, the housing market yeah. is a good example of something affecting being, you know, massively affected by this. Yeah, the housing market for sure, because we're talking, you know, if you increase the interest rate from, you know, two and a half percent to five percent, you can add several hundred dollars to someone's monthly payment for the same, the same home. So it's, it's yes, definitely across significant. a 15 year loan or a 30 year loan. That adds that's, up. That adds up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, mm -hmm. that's a lot of money. So the Federal Reserve, as you were saying, we, they pull this, they, they have one lever, um, one major level lever, at least, to try and steer the economy. They they increase the interest rate or they decrease it. Now, how they go about that can vary. You know what what they what they put the money into because by de when they decrease the interest rate, as we've talked about before, what they're doing is they're they're purchasing up stocks and bonds, um, and they and by doing that, they have specific effects on specific industries and things in addition to the larger the larger effect mm -hmm. but the larger effect is increasing the interest rate or decreasing the interest rate and uh they're pulling the lever and the train is not stopping mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that the train make no mistake the train is going to be affected by this to some degree 
but it may not be enough to stop it. Yeah, it's and possible inflation would have been even worse if they hadn't increased those interest yes. rates, but that's still a, a serious problem. Yes, which, which leads us to this really interesting article discussing this. This is from the New York Times. Um, we're, we'll put a link for the New York Times version and the, the India Times version. Why, you ask? <laughs> because if you've exhausted your free articles or don't have a membership with the New York Times, you can get it from, through the India Times. <laughs> the exact same article <laughs> I, written by the same person. <laughs> by the same person. Uh, did you, did, are they owned by the same company? You know, I, I, I didn't spend enough time. I, I, I looked into it and I wasn't able to find out quickly enough if it's a, a subsidiary, but I assume that it is. There's, yeah, India I Times. I assume that New the York India Times. Times is either owned by New York Times or owned by some other company that owns New York Times or has some other relation because they're, you know, using the same article basically the, the, the same day. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm looking at the, the website. Uh, I see Economic Times at the beginning of the, of the domain name. So I wonder, maybe that's the parent. The, the Economic Times, which is the New York Times, the New Times, or I guess that it's probably the subcategory since it's dealing with economics. So forget everything I just said. <laughs> I already did. Wait, what? I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just keep talking until it makes sense. <laughs> we don't have that but kind this of article, time. This, <laughs> that's true. This article from Lydia DePillis uh, is really interesting. And we're going to go through it in some detail. We're going to read uh, significant portions of it and dissect what she says. She presents... As Brad was saying, kind of the classic interpretation of this economic phenomena, which we've just alluded to, uh, we're just exploring bits of, and then suggests a new interpretation of what's happening and what's causing the inflation. Uh, so she explains it this way. Oh, yeah. uh, so she the, quotes the article a, is called, Is Greedflation Rewriting Economics or Do Old Rules Still Apply? And so that's the question that's being raised here is, is greedflation the new theory that can explain what's happening with current inflation. Right. And greedflation, first off, if you've never heard that term, I think this is the first time I heard it. Is this the first time you've heard it, Brad? I'm not sure, but prop maybe. We were, yeah, now that we've talked about it for a long, for a while now, I can't quite remember. I want to say this is the first time. Uh, it's at least not a common term. But, so if that's new to but you. But the idea is not new to me. No, the idea is not new. The idea is, as we'll get to, uh, at least, when was Karl Marx born? <laughs> <laughs> because he started producing okay. his economic theories the day of his birth. Is that what you're implying? <laughs> well, I was going to do some quick napkin math okay, good. And, uh, and give him a few years. Well, yeah, but you're <laughs> asking for the date. Why didn't you just ask for a better date? You know? <laughs> the day he published. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Why don't we analyze my joke, Brad? There's simply a lot of cash out there, said Joe Brucellis, chief economist for the, the accounting firm RSMUS, referring to the several trillion dollars in pandemic stimulus that has filtered into the economy since early 2020. The competition for those goods is up, and that's sending prices up, whether we're talking about getting a Nissan Sentra or a seat on an American Airlines flight. This is, as we said, the kind of the classic approach. It's supply and demand. You've got the what the Federal Reserve is doing is it's uh, it's changing by changing the interest rate. It's changing the supply and demand that each person has for money and for, uh, for the things that you can then do with money. And they're encouraging a kind of, 
saving or at least uh, accumulation of liquid cash as opposed to investment or because of the uh, because of interest rates being higher discourages investment and discourages anything anything that's is Brad saying anything that's done on credit in other words anything with the fruit of which you're going to get in the future is discouraged and uh that affects the supply and demand of money, and all of this leads to inflation. And it's also a question of more dollars chasing fewer goods. So mm-hmm. you have you have the effect of it on the way yeah, people are accumulating Yeah, I was about to say, the, the theory you're proposing is more complicated. I'd say that the straightforward economics 101 theory that's being talked about in this article is simply that there's fewer there's dollars money. chasing – I mean, there's more dollars chasing fewer goods. And that's right. it. You know, it's not about supply of money. It's, I mean, it's demand for money. It's just about supply and demand of goods in exchange for money. Right. She doesn't get in. She doesn't get into the supply of money very much. But that's that's the mechanism that's behind the scenes here. Um. So, and the result is you get with a a higher demand, same supply or less supply because of the supply chain issues of COVID. Mm-hmm. You're going to get higher costs. And that is, in their terms, inflation. Any any time the price goes up, that's inflation in kind of modern economic terms. Um, old economic terms, it was a much more narrow definition. Here's the second theory. The White House and progressive organizations, however, say, wait a minute, this time is different. In a time of extraordinary disruption, they contend, increasingly dominant corporations are taking the opportunity to jack up prices more than they otherwise could which is squeezing consumers and supercharging inflation, or greedflation, as the hypothesis has come to be known. The idea being, corporations are taking advantage of the changed expectations Mm -hmm. and raising their prices, and that's what's causing the increase in prices. And and maybe not exclusively, right? This is, in some some ways, it it doesn't have to be either or, but they're saying that Greedflation is what's happening now, um, as opposed to, you know, something driven by the Federal Reserve. This is actually driven by corporations. And and like most economic theories, it's not just about whether or not this is happening. It's about is this the impetus? Is this the cause for the results that we're seeing? Because yeah, if we're going to solve this problem, where do we? What do we target? Because if if all you had to do is demonstrate any of that then yes, inflation would be immediately proved with supply and demand theory because we know there are more dollars out there. You know what I mean? And same yeah. goes for the White House theory. We know that there's a business somewhere that's overcharging. You know what I mean? And by overcharging, we mean they've raised their prices and they didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. They weren't forced to by increasing costs. And and so so being able to point to it once isn't enough. You need to be able to demonstrate that it is significant, that what it's doing is is I mean, in this case we're talking the major cause because the White yeah. House isn't saying, "Hey, they're doing this too." They're saying, "Hey, you're upset about inflation. Don't look at the federal government spending. Look at these businesses." Yes. Yes. If there's a bad guy here, it isn't us. It's the uh, mm-hmm. it's the businesses. It's which which, as you're saying, it's just a kind of this is the primary cause. Exactly, this is the real problem that should be addressed. Um, the article, to its credit, says it's hard to tease out what's what's really happening. Uh, 
It goes on, quote, a pandemic, a trade war, a land war, huge government spending, and a global economy that has become vastly more integrated might be too complex for traditional macroeconomic theory to explain. Um, she then talks about people proposing going back to economics, revisiting the discipline and, and, and starting to rethink some things and starting to, uh, later she points out there may be a need to integrate, uh, microeconomics from into macroeconomics and, and find a way to make them uh, work together and communicate with each other, which if you are familiar somewhat with, with uh, economic theory and the, the post Keynes world, post world war two world, um, the two are separate. The two have been made separate in the common economic theories of our time. And they're treated as very different phenomenon. And there's a different language to, to describe them and they don't overlap. They're two different worlds. Brad and I have critiqued this at different points. I think this is a, a massive mistake. Um, the, the Austrian school of, econ of economics, which we subscribe to is, uh, has a much more coherent and, uh, it has a theory that incorporates both the, the small. Yeah, there's no separate theory for, for small scale and then a different scale theory for large scale. It's just one theory for anything. It's one theory. Yes, right, right. So, so a, tr there's no need for a translation or to reintegrate the two together, um, as they're calling for here because the two were never in conflict. As it is, microeconomics and macroeconomics in the modern theories are actually contrary to each other. Right? What yeah, they say they, when you're looking at a small-scale operation, you use these rules and principles. But when yes. you're looking at a large scale, you use these other rules and principles in order to understand it. And they're fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're actually opposed to each other. The kind of things that you want the federal government basing its policies on are often things that you'd say are contrary to the interest of any given micro, you know, any given specific actor in the, uh, within the economy, you know, some, uh, the micro level is actually, and how they're acting, what motivates them is the opposite of what you want at the, at the macro level. And so you have to use the macro level in some ways to control and direct the micro. Um, the, the, you can't actually apply both principles at once because it's, uh, the two are, the two are fundamentally incompatible. Anyway, it's not just a different language there. They, they don't, they're pieces of a, of two different puzzles, not just two pieces of the same puzzle. Mm -hmm. She goes on uh, to then say this, this line here, which I think is extremely telling. There is not much disagreement that many companies have marked up goods in excess of their own rising costs, which is true. Uh, and she points to shipping especially. But then she says, the real disagreement is over whether higher profits are natural and good. Mm -hmm. And that gets into the discussion that that we had a while ago, episode 85, talking about price gouging. Um, yes, because this is where this is where a lot of these greedflation ideas have really taken hold in the past couple months is it started with the idea of profiteering and price gouging that you have these greedy corporations who are taking advantage of a situation and it's actually transitioned into these greedy corporations are so greedy that they're not taking advantage of the situation, they're actually causing it, which, you know, doesn't quite make sense, 
because how can they take advantage of a situation that they've caused? You know, like, I mean, they can't take advantage of the situation they've caused, but you can't go from one to the other. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can't. You're right. The situation. Yeah. For them to take advantage, there must be causes. But, but I guess you could say that, um, the, it's the world turmoil, right? It's uh-huh. COVID uh-huh. and the supply chain crisis that they're taking advantage of. Um, you don't, you don't actually need the Federal Reserve to, the Federal Government through the Federal Reserve to be a part of this equation at all. You can attempt to pin this all on greedy corporate actions. No, you, you definitely can, but it doesn't mean you'll be successful. I mean, depending <laughs> on who you listen yeah. to, part of the problem is that right now, corporations are so easy to bash. You know what I mean? I'm not a big fan of <laughs> they- corporations. Most people aren't a big fan of corporations. And so it's easy just to bash the big corporations and blame them for everything. You know, unless you already yes, hate Joe yes. Biden, in which case you blame him. Yeah, and the corporations themselves have even stepped into it, right? They'll they'll play the, along with that game too. Uh-huh, they'll be like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, the problem is corporations, we need these regulations. Pass them, please. So I, there's there's a few different few different few different ways to go here. So the first thing is this price gouging, and the idea is that we've talked about before is that is that they're charging more than they have to. And and the the example that uh, that she gives in this article is you've got someone who's selling empanadas, and they normally cost three dollars to produce, um, and so normally you charge five dollars. You know you're making some profit over the top, but now there's a supply shortage of all the things you need to make empanadas, ovens, um, or, or bread or whatever. Um, but their popularity is still there. So now you can start charging $6 and people will still buy it because other people in your same market aren't producing as much. And you're able to make a larger margin without doing any extra work. And the cons- and the consumers are losing, right? That's the idea with price gouging: is that you're taking advantage of the situation, you're charging more for toilet paper when there's a shortage, and people are just losing out. Um, and then talks about some real life examples of that. And then what's what's fun about this article is that, as she says that, she then goes on to say. And here's a quote, even if high prices aren't able to increase supply and the shortage remains, an economics 101 class might still teach that price is the best way to allocate scarce resources, or at least that it's better than the government price controls or rationing. As a consequence, less wealthy people may simply have no access to empanadas. Um, and, and that's basically exactly what we said in episode 85. Well, not exactly, but close is that, is that yes, if you start price controlling empanadas and say, you know what, people can only charge $4 for empanadas, then you're going to run out of them because people have a certain demand for empanadas. What I find so interesting about that is she keeps referring it to economics 101. And there's a fundamental idea here. And the idea here is that, yeah, people in economics 101 classes might be told this, but out in the real world, things are more complicated. And you can't just rely on these newfangled theories. You have to understand how the real world works. And in the real world, people are hurting and people feel things and we need to, we need to fix that. And she doesn't say that, but there's an undertone here that's, that's somewhat implied here. Yes, this, is, this article is a, is a side note on, on that thread. This article is high quality stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there, is, there is propaganda and then there's good propaganda. This fits into the latter, latter category, and maybe, and maybe propaganda is too strong a word. 
But I think she, uh, with her tone and things and the way she writes, she can be subtly very persuasive. And it's, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it's impressive in some ways, but you're, you're right that the, in catching the tone there, that she, she, the way in which she raises questions, you can, you can predict to some degree, which, you know, what she believes and what she's pushing for. In fact, the, the reason you would draw attention to this concept of greedflation at all, which is not well known, is to spread the idea. Unless you were going to write a fundamentally different article in which you were aiming to refute it, right? She's clearly advocating for it indirectly. And then she goes on to to discuss a couple other aspects of, of what could be caught in this, talking about things like concentration, you know, that when you have less companies, and so those companies tend to dominate a particular market to a larger degree, and things like that have an effect on whether or not greedflation is, is causing a toll. And then she goes on at the end to conclude... And I know we're jumping to the end quickly. It's because we have some some thoughts about this ending that are really interesting. Um, and this quote here, the relationship of profits, inflation, and market power will be tough for, ec- for economists to nail down. High quality government data will take time to produce. Moreover, it requires a melding of micro and macro economic disciplines that haven't had to synthesize so many factors simultaneously with little historical precedent. And so what she's describing here is a significant lack of current economic theories to diagnose what's going on and offer useful theories, helpful theories, so that we can understand the situation. So basically, at the end of the article, she's putting her hands in the air and saying, I don't know. And really, no one knows. Is this greedflation? Is this economy substantially different than other economies? The only way for us to find out is two things. Number one, we have to have a huge amount, a huge amount, sorry, speaking is hard, a huge amount of of government data so we know it's reliable that we can look at to see what happened and then the second thing is we actually need to change our current economic theories because as they are they they can't synthesize this because there's too much going on and it's too different from what's happened in the past that's a real problem because having high quality government data that takes time to produce is not going to take time. It's going to take years. You know what I mean? It's easy to get high high quality data after the fact, years after the fact. The problem with that is it doesn't help us know what to do in the current situation. And then the right. other problem is melding two different economic disciplines into one is really not melding. It's really coming up with an entirely new economic theory. Because as Dan said early, micro and macroeconomic disciplines are different. And they're fundamentally different. And so you can't just meld them. They don't lock together like puzzle pieces. They have to be reworked in order to make that even possible. Right. Which seems to be the point, right? That's what greedflation is proposing, uh, that we have misunderstood what drives economic phenomenon in a key way, in a way that's going to cause a serious problem here in the current, uh, you know, that we're, that we're going to live through right now. And then the conclusion we should draw is that we rethink economics, uh, in a, in a big way. Uh huh. Um, and, uh, and specifically towards the direction of price controls and, uh, and further regulation of various, uh, 
of the corporations. And yeah, things, that's, right? that's at a, least implied. So it's more of a controlled economy. It's, controlled it's, economy it's, yeah. a, it's at least implied with the idea that greedflation can be playing a role. Because if greedflation is playing a role, if greedflation is causing this disinflation, which is causing all these other negative effects, then what that means is that quote-unquote capitalism isn't worth working. And anytime an expert decides that capitalism quote-unquote isn't working, the solution is government intervention you know what i mean that's that's what happened you know you know back in 2009 that's what happened you know during the great depression that's what always happens is if you ever decide capitalism doesn't work then you got to step in and fix it and that's where this article is leaning towards but that's not actually what we really want to focus on what we want to focus on is the fact that (laughs) we live in a world of half-baked economic theories because if you talk to most people their understanding of economics is closer to those econ 101 references than it is to the macro or micro economic theories you know when people hear supply and demand they're like yeah i get that when people hear about you know some of these other basic economic principles it's like yeah that that makes sense but the thing is is any economist you talk to is not basing their theory off of an econ 101 class. In fact, once you go to your econ 102 class and your 202 and your 210 and your 340, they're going to tell you that the simple economic theories in your econ 101 class don't work in the real world. And so what you're going to need are these complex mathematical models and these different convoluted theories that will help you to diagnose what is actually going on which is why she says you have to rewrite these micro and macro economic theories in order to explain what's going on today because what we're talking about is not simple theories like supply and demand what we're talking about actually involves mathematical formulas and that's how economics works today is these mathematical formulas and if you haven't picked up on it that's stupid and (laughs) it's stupid for for so many reasons but number one is it's often illogical because you're using these complicated formulas and looking at very specific data sets and as we've talked about before that can be misleading you know what i mean it's something we've seen you know like for example polling We've talked about this many times. Polling can get you all sorts of results depending on what you're looking for and how you ask the questions. Well, economic mathematical formulas work the same way. Let's just take inflation, for example. Inflation is not something that you can step outside and say, oh, inflation is at 8.6 year over year in May. I just know it. I can, I, I can look outside and that's demonstrably true right? That's not how it works. You could do that and look outside and say, yeah, it's, it's, it's sunny outside or it's dark. You know what I mean? You could just tell that, but to say that the inflation rate is 8.6%, that's a concrete number. In order to have that concrete number, what they do is they take a basket of goods, which means particular items or types of items they're looking at and seeing how much they've increased in cost. Now, if you look at sour cream in the past year sour cream has almost doubled in price 
Um, I know because we purchase a lot of sour cream, and so I've looked at most of the stores say, in Utah. This is an oddly specific example. And that's why – and cream. it has to be oddly specific, Dan, because if you put sour cream in that basket, it's going to significantly jump the cost of inflation. You put yes. eggs in that basket. It's going to significantly jump inflation. And but let's be clear. Eggs should be in every basket. They, they should. Yeah, eggs, you know, milk, sour cream, the three essentials in any household – um, <laughs> sorry. Some people use bread, but they're wrong. It's sour cream. I don't know what you put the sour cream on since you don't have any bread, but don't worry about just it. Just mix it in the you milk. You just mix the milk and the eggs and the that sour cream. That way you don't have to wait for to it to go bad. Oh, man. No, but seriously, you put thing. those things in and inflation is much higher than 8.6. So why is it at 8.6? Because they're putting in other things that yes. haven't gone up hardly at all, and that affects the inflation rate. Yeah, how about gasoline? I mean, gasoline's gone gasoline way up. This? <laughs> I mean, and, and energy is one of the things that are in the basket that makes it go up. So what are the other things in the basket that haven't gone up? Because most of the things that I'm purchasing have gone up more than 8% year over right. year. Almost everything. Right. Almost everything that I buy has gone up more than 8.6%. In the past 12 months, lots of things have gone up 8.6% in the last two months that I buy. And so these mathematical formulas that tell me that my life is actually better than it is are an example of how these economic theories are actually broken. And right. that mathematical the formulas don't actually work all the time in the real world. Right. If you've been a regular listen to, listener to our, to our show, then you probably know that we don't agree with the the current economic theories that she's she's using two theories here in her example um one of them is the kind of keynesian modern model and one of them is the the uh is this greedflation uh more uh centrally planned economy a model um and we disagree with both of them now bits of what she's talking about with the when she says economics 101 supply and demand that is stuff we agree with. Um, but we part ways with the micro and macroeconomic divide that she critiques that doesn't, can't synthesize and so on. Um, and in large part, it's because uh, it, there's this term that I heard recently to describe how modern economists tend to view the discipline of economics that I'm, I really like. And it's a, it's physics envy. <laughs> they they look they look at physics, which you gave a good example of maybe not physics per se, pure physics, but but a good example of how you can interact scientifically with the world and get the kind of results you can get in a controlled environment. Something like checking temperature. Right? You can you can check the temperature of things through various ways. Um and control for the things that are going to get in the way and get precise measurements such that I could do it or you could do it or Brad could do it or anybody could do it. And if done properly, they will get the same results. Mm -hmm. Economics will never be that way. It will never be that way. And the, there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is, and this is, the big one, I guess, I guess in some ways, this is the reason and all the other reasons stem from it. It's because you're measuring something regarding humans and human choice. Specifically, as such, 
there is an element there that has things you could never control for. There's the complexity of human choice is such that it will never have that same lab-like consistency as gravity or, or, you know, various laws of physics that we can interact yeah, yeah. with. It's just not, not going to happen. And when the modern, uh, disciplines of economics started, they started horribly wrong by trying to reach mathematical certainty. And the seventies are an example of an, of an economic time period like this one. Um, that really, really screwed up their models. It should have been the, the, uh, increase in inflation, um, and the, the decrease in employment and the, uh, what's the word? Stagflation should not be possible according to the models that most people go by. And it happened in the seventies and it's happening now. It's been happening uh, recently. And the problem is that anytime that happens, Dan, then what they say is, okay, well, we need to tweak these models. We need to rework the models yes. until they give us the results that we're already seeing. And this is the kind of data manipulation that I'm talking about, is that anytime your theory falls apart, their solution is not to say, oh, well, maybe we're looking at this fundamentally the wrong way. It's to say, okay, we'll tweak the models. We'll ask different questions until we get the answers that we want. Well, and in some ways, that's what, that's exactly what greedflation could be, right? It could be them going, okay, so our mathematical equation turns out is still good. We missed this variable. And so we're going to plug in another value here that's going to represent greedflation. So and then, then, the, then the equation will balance, right? So the question that, that I feel like would be obvious to be asked here is, okay, so the mathematical formulas don't work. Um, we can't look at this scientifically because it's based on humans and the choices they make, then how, how do you have ec any economic theory at all? Is it just like psychology, which most people consider a crock? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it, is it sociology? It is 100% a kind of sociology. Um, it broadly speaking, it probably fits under sociology and the other soft, what are sometimes referred to as soft sciences. Mm -hmm. Um, and by soft science, we mean not science. <laughs> we mean 800 ply or higher. <laughs> yes, this is a, let's talk, let's talk bed sheets for a moment. <laughs> um, by soft science, we mean you cannot use, you, you cannot, that physics envy will actually result in problems rather than making it better. You can use empirical information, but you have to use it within the, within a proper understanding of your limitations. Um, and the, the way you get a theory from this position, part of it is empirical still. Part of it is you're looking at the, the, the historical facts, you're looking at the data. But part of it must be, but that, that alone will not generate a theory. Because in order to see data, in order to see the information, in order to perceive things at all, right? What, what is it? Let's pretend you're, you're trying to create an objective data-driven theory of economics. What are you going to look at first? Because by telling me what you're going to look at and what you're going to start analyzing, you're going to be revealing even unconsciously what your theory is a theory. Yeah. Yes. 
right? You can't actually, this is actually a really fundamental insight in terms of human psychology and, and the act of thinking at all. You cannot get away from theory and from some kind of, in order to perceive the world, you have to be acting in it. And in order to act, you have to have some end. And that end at least presupposes some kind of theory of what will bring you satisfaction, what will improve your life, what will make your life less bad. Because why even look at the economy unless you have a theory that there is such a thing as the economy and that it's worth paying attention to? You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense unless you have some kind of theory that it matters. This is one of the fundamental insights of Mises. Uh, Mises is the the founder, you could say, of the of the Austrian School of Economics. He marked a change from the old uh, kind of French classical was the kind of the basis of the theory, um, and then it, the Austrian School takes the insights and, and carries them further. Um, the Austrian School uh, and Mises talks about how, uh, in his book Human Action, how we view history. We're trying to science make history, the study of history, scientific in the same way we're trying to make everything scientific. It, it too had the discipline of history too had physics envy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what people wanted was just give me the facts, right? Just give me the facts. Well, which facts are important enough to be worth telling? That alone presupposes that you have something, some way of judging what's important from what's not important. And what would you call that if not some kind of theory of, you know, he, he uses the term theory there to say you have to have a theory to determine what's worth repeating to begin with. So if you're going to tell a story, what elements of the story are, are important, right? You don't give every detail. A book that just gave you facts would be absolutely, you know, dry, without, without purpose, you know, information without purpose, without reason, without ordering of, of, of what's in, of what's, uh, what's sort of kind of a hierarchy. Even if you were to describe like a, I'm trying to imagine someone going through a data pool, even to put it in an order that made sense requires some kind of theory of what would be important to know and how people think and, and that, would, that would get you there. So, Dan, we're not just talking about this to nitpick at this article or to nitpick at the current economic theories and economists who are out there, even though we are definitely throwing some shade, some shade on current economic theories. The reason we're doing that, though, is because more and more – People are focusing on the economy because more and more it's becoming a larger part of their lives. You know, what's happening with inflation? What's happening with the Fed? This is going to hurt people in a significant way, and people need to understand what they can do and what should be done, right? That matters. Elections are going to come up. Who they're voting for matters. Decisions that we make on a personal scale matter. And so people need to have the tools, and right now, the tools that they have are number one, inaccessible, because in order to understand these complicated economic theories, there's a lot of of mathematical knowledge and other expertise that the layman can't just pick up. And so the experts would say to you, just listen to me because you can't understand it. But then the expert themselves only has a complicated theory that really just self-justifies themselves instead of providing useful information that's actually helpful. Right. 
as demonstrated by this article, is that this article is well-written by someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to economic ideas, but by the end, kind of throws up their hands. And so what we need is tools to help people. And that's where Austrian economic theory comes into play, you know. And what we would really like to do is take time to break down how the Austrian economic theory works what the core components are, and then how we apply that to the real world in a meaningful and helpful way. And so what we're going to do, because that's something that's going to take over an hour to do, is we're going to pause here for this week. And next week, we're going to go and we're going to talk about Austrian economic theory and, and what we believe and why we think it's the answer to the questions that aren't being answered by the other economic theories today. Why we think it's the theory that will actually provide useful information even before you have mountains of, you know, high quality government data that you can pour over and redesign your theories around. And so right. that's what we'd like to do is, is pause here for this week and next week just go in and dig in and, and share what we believe and why we believe it. And we hope to see you then. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.